Now, you all just knew that I was going to be in Luke 2 this morning. And you know why, right? We were in Luke 1 last week. Guess where we'll be next week? Finishing up Luke 2. Going on our way to Luke 3. For you see, we are about to enter not the consummation of the story. This is the beginning of the story. This is the beginning of Luke's gospel that he will then unfold for us even more in rich detail of the work that our Lord Jesus Christ has done for sinners like you and me. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And because of these things, our good Lord has blessed us with His word. Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 1 and ending at verse 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. 
Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, Lord, we ask this morning that You would make us not only aware of the birth of our Savior, but that You would make us aware of Your great plan that from eternity past You had decreed and promised and performed that You would redeem for Yourself a people. And so we ask this morning, Lord, that You would make us thankful that You would give us faith that we might trust in You. This we ask in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in His name we pray. Amen. Once again, we come to a a very famous story, do we not? And once again, I will ask you to suspend your understanding of the Christmas story. For you will find there are details that have crept into your mind that simply do not exist in the text. And there are things that you gloss over because they seem so familiar. For this morning, we have the inauguration of the consummation of God's plan. From eternity past... The Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit covenanted among themselves to redeem a people, to set right a world put wrong by sin and the sinful choices of man. And so this morning we see the story of exactly how far God was willing to go. Not only to set things aright, but to keep His promise. And so this morning we will see, first, a humble birth. Again, it seems so familiar, but this morning let us in wonder look at what it means that our Lord Jesus Christ was born in this fashion. And then we will see a heavenly announcement, as heaven cannot contain itself from announcing the greatness and the glory that has come to earth. And then third, we will see heralding the Savior. How the shepherds became the first heralds of the birth of Christ. And how you and I are called to that same task today. A humble birth, a heavenly announcement, and heralding the Savior. Well, let's begin then by looking at verse 1 of chapter 2. In those days, a decree went on from went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. And this helps, this is Luke's effort to set in context for us what is going on and just how radically God is changing the world. You see, we just take this for granted. Well, of course, there was this census. We're not even sure what a census is. Don't we do censuses? Every ten years? Well, there needed to be because that's how we get the baby Jesus to the, with the donkeys and the, and the cattle and the sheep and the little straw and the manger scene and the wise men. We pull them in. 
But Luke is doing much more than that. You see, in these days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. And you have to understand that this is, in very short form, a description of our world. It's very self-important. Even the name Caesar Augustus points to this. For Caesar Augustus' name was neither Caesar nor Augustus. His name was Octavian. And these were titles that he took to himself to impress others. After he had consolidated his power, he took the name Caesar after his patriarch, Julius Caesar, to show that he was the king, he was in charge. And then he went to the effort of having the Senate declare upon him the name Augustus. And you could just imagine the day when in feigned surprise he said, Oh, really? Me? Augustus? Most high? Most exalted? Oh, I shouldn't. Okay. It's very self-important. And you can see what he does. He's going to run the world. Now, you have to understand that the Roman Empire at this time encompasses the known world. From the deserts of Africa to the mountains of Spain up into England, over across the continent, down through the Mediterranean Sea, even into the Middle East. Everywhere you go, Rome has put its stamp upon the world. The money is Roman. The roads are Roman. The politics are Roman. The society is Roman. They are in charge of the known world. And so now... They decide that now is the time to show the entire world that they are in charge. Now, imagine this. The great Caesar Augustus, in the midst of his palace in Rome, is essentially saying what is going to happen here, you need to go out into every little tiny village in every country all over the world and get my money. I don't care how small it is. I don't care how far away it is. It's my money. I'm in charge. And so they begin then to put everyone out. They start this census, this registration. And you have to understand, this is not like our census, where the workers come to your door and they ask how many people you are and they write them down and they go away. No, no, no. This is like they come to your door and after they write down, the IRS agent turns around and says, Surprise! I'm here. Now give me money for every person. You see, this is their way of showing control and getting revenue. And think of what they do to people. Put it in the context of your own lives. How annoyed and angry are you because a government website doesn't work? Do you want me to really make you angry? Let me order you to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles on Monday. (laughs) What? You're going to put me out? I'm going to lose my whole morning. It's miserable. There's lines. They don't know what they're doing. Now imagine if I said, all of you need to stop it everything going on in your lives and go travel by foot, mile upon mile upon mile, so I can get money from you. This is inconvenient. 
This is the world putting its stamp on me. Chains, as it were. And all the way out to this little town of Bethlehem, the power of the world reaches. But you see, there's an irony at work here because while the world is puffing out its chest and saying we're in control and our reach will go all the way out to the hinterlands, you see God is at work. Not like the world. Not with bombastic decrees. Not with laws shouted from the mountains. No. God is at work quietly in the background. You see, God is using Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus is a pawn in the hands of the living God because the living God will keep a promise. His Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Why? Because He has said so in Micah chapter 5. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. A centuries-old promise, and God will keep it if He needs to take control of the entire Roman Empire. This is how powerful God is. And if the world is the epitome of self-importance, we have to understand that God at work here is working very humbly. For you see, the king is going all but unnoticed. There is, of course, the hardship of travel that we could imagine. Now, we don't know whether Joseph and Mary were able to, to borrow some kind of animal for Mary to ride on, but even if she didn't have to walk... Ladies, I think you'll agree with me here, nod your heads, that even riding on the back of a donkey when you're eight, eight and a half months pregnant is not exactly an enjoyable experience. I don't think riding in a car at that stage is an enjoyable experience. And so there's a hardship of travel put upon Joseph and Mary, and they come finally to this dusty town, this small town of Bethlehem, and they come and there is no room at the inn. And this is where I think we must pull away some of our understanding. I think what we envision is Joseph and Mary coming up to this fine building with a warm, roaring fire and good hot food and being met by a mean, cranky innkeeper who says, you don't have enough money here. There's no room for you here. You can go out with the animals. It's not that nice, people. This is not an inn. This is not a four-star motel. This is not a Motel 6. This is a flop house. The reason there was no room is not because the innkeeper was mad. It was because there was nowhere to lay down. The inn was very likely one big room where people literally piled in and laid on the ground and slept. And when they got there, there was no ground to lie down on. And these types of flop houses usually had either two floors, a second floor for people and a first floor for animals, or they had two small buildings, one for people and then an outbuilding for animals. And so Joseph and Mary go out and perhaps they find a courtyard or an area where the animals are, and this is not some kind of barn that is swept clean with nice, clean, neat, fake straw. 
This is a stable where there's smells. Things you don't want to touch. Things that don't look so good. Now, imagine just sleeping there. I venture to say we probably have got a bunch of Boy Scouts here that would not be willing to sleep under these conditions. Now imagine that you're going to have to give birth here. Now imagine you're young and frightened and you're going to give birth for the first time here. Now imagine you're Joseph and you're the one in charge. A lot of emotions, fear, trembling, sickness, anxiety. This is not the way a king comes. A king comes and heralds announce his coming forth and people move others out of the way and everything is made smooth and the best and the brightest are brought for the king. Others are intimidated. Others are harassed. Others go at a loss. Not the king. But that's not how King Jesus comes. For you see, Jesus comes unnoticed. He comes in a humble and an ordinary way. Now, why is this? Is this because it makes a good story? Because we can think about the cute baby Jesus in this little wooden manger? No, I don't think so. The reason why this kind of a birth is the birth that our Lord chose is because it fulfilled His plan. When Luke says in verse 6, the time came for her to give birth, it's the same word that we've seen before where it says, the time was fulfilled. It is fulfilling God's plan. And this is a reminder here to you and to me of the depth of our sin. You see, we have a tendency as we romanticize the Christmas story to say to ourselves, if we were there, we would give up our room for Jesus. If we were there, we'd have a blanket for Jesus. If we were there, we would cuddle Jesus. Let me tell you, you wouldn't. You'd be inconvenienced. You'd wonder why all that noise is going on. You'd wonder why someone who was pregnant was out this time anyway. You wouldn't pay any attention to this family. You see, we have to understand the depth of the hold of sin upon us. Apart from the work of the great triune God, we are not good and helpful people. We are self-centered We are just like Caesar Augustus. We have self-importance. We think about me, myself, and I. And our Lord God here is highlighting that for you and me today. Jesus came in a humble fashion. It also shows the lengths to which Jesus was willing to come. For you see, even as I give you some of the flavor of the sweat and the smell and the dirt of the area where He was to be born, that was nothing compared to the humility and the condescension that He took on by coming to the world, period. By becoming flesh. By living amongst sinners. You see, when we 
think about this, when we can smell the smells and feel the feelings and see the sights, it becomes clearer to us just exactly how humble Jesus is. Well, this is the way a king comes. But you see, heaven is not able to contain itself. The world can be self-important and ignore Jesus. Caesar can be counting his money. Herod could not even be thinking about it. People could be sleeping and snoring away in the next room. But heaven knows what is going on. And you see here in verse 8 what happens is that in this same region there are shepherds out by night and an angel of the Lord comes down and appears to them. Why to shepherds? Why not to Herod? Often I think that that is, if we were planning the birth and the announcement of Jesus, that's what we would do. We would tell the angels to go and visit Congress and the Supreme Court so that they could then fix everything that they have messed up. Let's start at the top. Let's get the most bang for our buck. But yet the angels here, they come and they visit shepherds. Men who are out with the animals. <coughs> and see, shepherds are the personification of the lowly, the poor, and the humble in society. I don't think that society looked down upon the shepherds any more than other menial jobs. They weren't foul, they weren't outcasts, but they certainly were not rich and famous. They were simple men of the earth. They were men who now were out under the open air tending animals so that they could feed their wives and children, so that they could have their own dreams, so that they could work and serve. And you see here, the angels come here not to the best of society. They come to those who are on the, the bottom rung of the social ladder, as it were. And they come in a very sudden fashion. The way that Luke describes it, that they appeared, is you have to imagine there is an element of surprise and even of the supernatural that is involved here. Have you ever had that experience where you are engrossed in something, you're maybe cooking or looking at something or working on something, and your spouse comes from another room and they don't know how engrossed you are and they walk up and a foot or two behind you, they go, hey, hon! And you jump out of your skin and they, they, whoa, you surprised me. I wasn't paying attention. That's what's happening to the shepherds. They're caught unawares. They know about God. They've heard about God. They've read about God, but now the glory of God is right in front of them. And there's no mistaking it. There is a great contrast here from this scene of the humble manger to now the glory of God being on display. It is sudden. It is supernatural. And it is so much so that when the message is to come from the angels, it begins in such a familiar fashion. Fear not. Sometimes I think we would benefit from a Bible study with a highlighter of one color, simply underlining or highlighting the words, fear not, 
every time God meets man. That would cure us forever of precious moments, angels. For you see, there is a suddenness, there is a fear that comes in order to even pay attention. Their knees are knocking, their teeth are chattering, and the angel says to them, fear not, you have to listen to me. He says, fear not, for behold. Now behold is ancient Hebrew for listen very carefully. Everything I say is important. Everything I say has been prepared. This is a message, not just a message for you. This is a message for everyone that you will speak to. And it is a message, we know, for people in Katy in 2013. Fear not. Listen, I have good news. And once again here, Luke reminds us of what the story of Jesus is all about. For you see, this is a verb. When we think of the gospel, we think of it as a noun. It is a thing. It can be measured. Luke thinks of it as a verb. It is something you must do. You must bring this good news. You cannot contain it. You have to share it. It lifts spirits. It changes hearts. It changes the world. Fear not, I'm bringing you good news. And the good news always comes with joy. Doesn't it? That's why we sang joy to the world. The joy is in the good news. And if the news is good, then the joy, after all, is great. Isn't it? It is beyond anything that we can imagine. I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. Now, once again, we must not jump too quickly to understanding what is being said here. Do you notice the odd turn of phrase? All the people. What would we expect? All people, right? No. It's all the people. The people is a defined Bible term. The people is Israel. The people is the people of God. The people are the ones who have the prophecy. The people are the ones who are waiting for the fulfillment. The people are the ones to whom God has made His covenant promise. For after all, the people are the people of Abraham. The people to whom God promised That He would fix what was broken. That He would pay the penalty. That He would be crushed instead of them. You see, the angel here is doing more than just saying some exciting stuff is happening. He's saying God is now keeping His promise in time. You can see it. It is sure. And you see, when we understand that, then the birth of Jesus takes on a whole new and exciting meaning because what it says to us is, if God can keep that promise, if God can keep a promise to save a people, if God can keep a promise to be just and the justifier of the ungodly, if God can keep a promise that requires that God become man, then I will never leave you nor forsake you as a piece of cake. 
then I have a place for you in my Father's house is nothing. You see, every Bible promise that you have, the birth of Jesus reminds you that you can hold on to firmly and God will fulfill it. Is that what you think about at Christmas? It's more than just a baby. It's God keeping every one of His promises. But let's not forget who is keeping the promise. Let's not forget who Jesus is. The angels will remind us this good news that brings great joy to God's people is that to us is born today in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And Luke does it again. In one short sentence, he takes virtually all of the theology of the Bible and compacts it in. He says, do you know who this is? It's the son of David. Have you noticed that in the story here? That not once, not twice, three times David is mentioned just in our passage. This is the sixth or seventh time that David has been referred to already in Luke's Gospel. Luke wants to get across the point to us that the one who is coming is the king. He is the heir of David. He is the firstborn, we see in verse 7. He is the one to whom all blessing and inheritance comes. But He is not just David's son. He is also a Savior. He is the one who delivers, who rescues from death and destruction. And you see, if Jesus is the Savior, then we cannot escape the conclusion that we need saving. That we do not have it all together. That we are not on the right path. That we do not just need to stay out of trouble and everything will be okay. No, no. We are lost. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And apart from Jesus coming, and apart from Jesus' work, we would be destroyed. Even when you're wearing clean clothes. Even when you're on time for work. Even when nobody is mad at you. You cannot escape your sin. The only hope for sin is a Savior. And the angel says, this is who Jesus is. He is the Savior. And He is also Christ. Now we become so familiar with this that we we think of it as Jesus' last name. It's the way we distinguish Jesus from other Jesuses. And that's true after a fashion, but not because it's a name. It's a title. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew Messiah, which simply means the anointed one, the one whom God has chosen, the one whom God has set apart, the one whom God has equipped and empowered to do the task that has been given to him. When David was anointed, he was set apart as the king. And God would help him through the work of ruling. But here we see that the one who has come, who is Savior, is not just powerful in his own might. But God has anointed him for the task. God the Father has sent him. There is no way that he can fail. 
He is Savior. He is Christ. But Luke completes the trilogy. He's also the Lord. You see, especially at this time of year, we need to be reminded that Jesus is not just simply a good teacher, a cute baby, someone to help us. No, Jesus is your King. He is your Lord. His Word is your law. What He says rules and reigns. He is the Lord God incarnate. This is who Jesus is. Have you stopped to think of the wonder of Jesus, Savior, Christ, and Lord? And then the angels begin to burst forth in song. For you see, they cannot contain in themselves the joy, the majesty of what is happening. Heaven cannot be silent anymore. And so they begin to give glory. And again, we must understand a biblical way of thinking. They don't begin with how wonderful is it that people are saved. They don't begin with how wonderful is it that we have seen this. They don't even begin with what a blessing to Joseph and Mary. They begin with glory to God. You see, biblical theology always begins with God, not with me. And they give glory to God in the most glorious demonstration that we can imagine. Can you imagine the wonder of it all? Not even being able to see in the middle of the night as the glory of God fills the area. And even though it begins with God, notice that it overflows to man. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. You see, Jesus has come not just for God's glory, but also for our good. And there is a real peace that He brings, not like the Pax Romana, not like the peace of Caesar Augustus that is kept with force and pain and law. No, it is a peace that penetrates down to our hearts. It is an inward peace, a holistic peace that comes when we are right with God and therefore can be right with each other. And it flows directly from God to His people. You will notice here that verse 14 is a little different than the Christmas carol version. We're used to seeing good will to men. But that's probably not the right translation. Because it is not just some sort of generic thing that comes that is good to everyone everywhere. No, What Luke is saying here, what the angels are singing here, is that the peace comes to those with whom God is well pleased. And the only ones with whom God is well pleased are those that He has chosen as His people. Think about the shepherds. They didn't say, we better get a good seat on the hill so we can catch the angel show. They didn't say, well, what do you want to do today? Let's do this. No, God chose them. And this is how God works with you and with me. Again, unless we are willing to let God be God, we puff ourselves up with pride. 
It is God who has entered into our lives. It is God who has sent Jesus. It is not we. This is the way God works. Thirdly, finally, and briefly, we see the shepherds then begin heralding the Savior. And it begins just as the life of Jesus begins with you and with me. It begins with believing. They ask themselves, is this all true? You know, this is, this is a really good story, isn't it? Nearly everybody loves the Christmas story. If you think about it, almost everyone in America loves the Christmas story. They won't read their Bibles. They won't follow God's law. They won't give their lives to Christ, but they love the story. But you see, the shepherds take it a step further. They have real faith in what God has said, and they make a decision to trust God. Do you see what they do? They say, we must go to Bethlehem and see this thing. And then they do something that each and every one of us should remember is a part of our faith. They believe, they think, and then they act. Do you see what they do? They don't say, well, let's go over sometime when we get a chance. Let's see if we can go down and see if there's a baby in a manger. No, they say, let's go now and let's run as fast as we can. Because, you see, that's what faith does to you. It grips you. It makes you compelled to go on and follow Jesus. That's what true biblical living faith does. It grabs a hold of you and drags you kicking and screaming out of your sin and misery and follows the Lord because it is a work of the Spirit of God. And that's what they do. And the Lord rewards them, doesn't He? They find Joseph and Mary exactly as God has said. And then what happens is they cannot keep it to themselves. They go around and they start telling everyone. And people like the story. Tell us one more time about the angels. What did they sing? How many were there? How bright was it? And then later they say, well, that was a good story. They wonder about it. But they don't seize the faith that has seized the shepherds. The shepherds are changed by the story of Jesus. It's more than wonder. Their lives, their actions begin to change. And they begin then to imitate the angels. We see this in verse 20. They begin glorifying and praising God. For you see, God does what He says He's going to do. This is what Christmas is all about. And just like the shepherds, you can count and rely upon this. For you see, Jesus will return. God will do what He has promised. Will you trust Him today? Or will this story just remain a good story for you? You see, that's not how God has designed it. It's to change you. To be like Jesus. Let's pray.